Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank Van Halen for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to encourage you to join our Facebook group. Uh, just put in the word Stick to Wrestling, and it'll come right up in your uh, search browser or whatever you got, because there's a show coming up where we're going to be taking questions from our listeners. Show number 200 is not far off, and that's what the show is going to be about, a celebration of 200 episodes of Stick to Wrestling. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo in his avatar. And also, before I bring on my guest, I want to apologize once again the audio on this podcast. Lou's going to do the best he can with it. I mean, what we went through trying to get this done was incredible. I had my microphone and headphones ready to go. I test it. It says it's working. I go to uh, a Skype. It says, oh yeah, everything's working. I run a test. Everything's fine. Then Lou actually gets me on Skype and it's not working. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But all right, well, I'll just do the podcast on my laptop. I turn on my laptop, except I don't turn on my laptop. The power's not on. It died on me right there and then. So I'm stuck doing this on a regular phone. I thought about what the issue might be. I've had the same desktop computer since I think 2015. So in the next few days, I'm going to treat myself to either a new desktop or a new laptop computer, and hopefully that'll put our sound woes behind us. Thank you for sticking with us. And now, Stick to Wrestling is pleased to present Mr. Greg Bowl. Uh, Greg is a photographer who has some phenomenal shots from the old Boston Garden. Greg, thank you for coming on. Hey, great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your website? Like, what's the location, uh, what it's about, et cetera? Well, the site is uh, Boston Garden Vintage Wrestling. It's a series of work that I did back in 1978 that I did when I was really a fledgling photographer in Boston. And I was working uh, either as a uh, photo lab person or as a studio assistant, a little of both. But I still was pretty deep in my, my passion of doing photography outside, street photography for the most part. And I roamed Boston either by myself or sometimes with a friend who had the same uh, same inclination as I did. And and I like to shoot in a, kind of the darker areas of town, area that was known as the uh, the old combat zone, which was where all the, uh, all the men's clubs were and um, porno shops and things. I mean, it was, Boston had some dark areas back in those days in the 70s and the early 70s. And uh, I did that for several years. And that was kind of a great a great thing to fall into because it, it Boston Garden back in the 70s was just a, a kind of a dingy, dark, dirty arena. It, it had great history. It had unbelievable history with the Bruins and Celtics winning titles. But 
as far as a place to go and watch an event, it, it had some pretty dismal areas. But wrestling was big. Wrestling was there uh, a couple of times a month. And I got, one day I just got on the phone and uh, found the promoter. Said, hey, Boston photographer, I'd love to get in there and, and do some pictures. And, and I'd like to be able to walk around and kind of feel like I don't have any restraints. And he basically said, yeah, no problem. I'll put your name at the door. That was the end of the conversation. I never had to ask again. I could just wow. walk into the garden. I could just walk into the garden whenever I wanted. Uh, after the first time, they they all recognized me. So, and back in those days, there were there was no there were no metal detectors. There was nothing. It was uh, it was literally just a breeze in and out. But I had run of the place, and uh, I shot a lot of work, and it sat for years. I always loved it. I always looked at it, and I'd I'd show it to friends. I'd show it to people, but. I never did anything with it. I, I did other photography as well. I shot a lot of uh, traditional outdoor landscape, and I and I was working as a studio photographer for years uh, after that. But I always went back to that wrestling work and said, someday I've got to do something with this. And then eventually I started showing it to a few other people, including uh, the then uh, person in charge of the Boston Sports Museum, who, which happens to be at the new Boston Garden. It's a, it's a gallery, it's a museum of everything sports-related in Boston. And uh, he loved the work, said, oh, this should be a book. We want to put it up, et cetera, et cetera. So I ended up uh, staying in contact uh, with them. His name was Richard Johnson. He's still a curator of the Boston Sports Museum. But I kept up with that, but I didn't do anything about it for maybe three or four years until I finally got around to building a website, putting all the work out. This is only three years ago, and then uh, finishing off with uh, having an exhibit of some of the print work at the Boston Sports Museum, which is it's actually part of the permanent collection. So it's still there. It's still hanging. It'll be there forever. And uh, I just set up the website and with no, with no real desire to do anything except just to get the work out there and let it be seen. And it's just, it's been a lot of fun. And it's gotten great response. I mean, everybody who everybody who sees it just loves it. I've never heard anything that was less than completely enthusiastic about it. I mean, if you know, I had grown up, I don't know, in California, I would have been blown away by those pictures. But as someone who regularly went to the old Boston Garden starting in 1981, I mean, just what a, a trip down memory lane those pictures were. I mean, it, it's nice that they have the you know, 1985, 1986 shows broadcast on Nesson, and we can go back and watch those. But, I mean, those pictures really brought back the 70s. Yeah, you just called the promoter. What was his name? You know, I can't remember what his name was, and I've tried to find out. I've tried to research back then who was doing promotions, and uh, it's kind of been a dead end. Oddly enough, you can go back and Google wrestling dates in Old Boston Garden in the late 70s, and you will find every match that was done, every wrestler, what the outcomes were. It's unbelievable, the uh, depth of detail. But you can't find out who the uh, promoter was. So, And unfortunately, when I was talking to the garden and Richard Johnson and the Sports Museum, there's nobody at the garden that has any information either. Nobody remembers any of that that far ago. A lot of the, uh, there's one photograph in the website of the, uh, I'm putting it in air quotes, quote unquote, uh, the officials at the officials desk. And they were basically the guys who were the janitors, the, the guys who worked in the garden. And they sat along 
the officials desk and all those guys are gone. And uh, it's, it's unfortunate. There's just no, there's no tracking back to a lot of the detail. One of the problems I had was trying to uh, recall some of the names of some of the wrestlers that I couldn't remember. And I think some of them were back then they called them jobbers, but the correct term, the, the correct term these days is additional talent. But some of those guys, nobody knew who they were. Um, they just showed up to fill out the card. Those guys were a big deal to me, though. Like, I loved going, and this is going to sound crazy, like if Silvano Souza wrestled Dave Darrow, I mean, I loved stuff like that because you didn't know who was going to win. It was, you know, the guys who always lost on TV wrestled each other at the Garden, and I, I enjoyed it. I don't know what to say. Yeah, it, it was it was like that. You had you had guys you knew, and you had big names that would show up, and you'd have guys you'd never seen before, and and they would show up, and sometimes they were pitted against the big guys, and sometimes they weren't. But the event needed enough people to fill out the whole evening, and they didn't always uh, have that many of the big names to do that. And I think back in those days, a lot of the wrestlers probably traveled around together and played the various venues at the same time because you saw the same guys. I mean, there was always Stan Stasiak and Ken Patera and, and Bruno and and uh, Tony Gurria and I think Baron Von Raschke was there and Ivan Koloff and you'd see Bruno a lot. But I just swear that they must have all traveled together because it seemed to be that kind of camaraderie. I, there's a thing I mentioned in the website under the description of what I was doing that I got to be friends with uh, Walter Killer Kowalski. He was a hobby photographer, and I got to know him because he bought photo supplies at the same pro store in Boston that I and everybody else who was working professionally went to. And I had a friend who worked at the store, and he got us together, and I got to know Walter. And and printing a show of his work and, and having it hung in the gallery of the black-and-white custom photo lab that I worked at at the time, and uh, we shot an invitation for the show of him in the ring at the garden doing a claw hold. And that was the only uh, posed photograph that I have on the website. But it's a great shot. It's just it is an incredible shot. And I mean, that's that's the money shot. But um, and I loved it. But anyway, I was walking back in the back hallways to the dressing room with Walter because he was going to he was going to work that night as the mass executioner, which. He was doing at that point. He was, he was probably about fifty, maybe early fifties then. He was sort of semi-retired, but when the wrestling came to town, they'd call him and he'd, he'd go in, put the mask on, and and do the mask bit. But uh, which a lot of wrestlers did when they got older because that was just a way of helping fill out the card. And and people love the mask, mask executioner characters. They just always seem to uh, be really drawn to that. Because I think a they know who it is under the mask, but b they want to believe that it's a it's a guy that's you know somebody from some evil doer from from somewhere dark and mysterious who has come to uh, wreak havoc on on the good guys, the faces. But anyway, so I'm walking back to Walter the to the dressing room, and he opens the door, and I look inside, and I see all the guys are in there. There's the animal sitting down. I think he's playing cards, and. Uh, talking to I mean all these guys are just hanging out having like a social club in the dressing room they were just totally chill and and having a good time but I couldn't go in there they didn't want me in the camera in the in the room because they don't want to show that hey these guys do work together and they do travel together and 
they know each other. They're not always at each other's throats, but you know, they don't want that out there. So I didn't get to do anything inside the locker rooms, but the back hallways, everything else, that was my area to roam. Yeah, you you absolutely have some great pictures there. Now, were you a fan coming in, or were you just were you more of a, a photographer or a fan? No, I was both. I was both because I grew up watching wrestling on TV, like you know, probably everybody else did, and uh, I never lost liking it. And back in the mid seventies, I I can't say that I was still watching it or keeping track of it, but. When I went to the garden, I, I was still, I was into it. I, I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching the guys in the ring. I mean, there's one thing about seeing it on a black and white TV when you're, you know, probably I started watching it about maybe five or six years old. And I can't tell you when I stopped watching it on TV. I might have been uh, 12, 13, 14, something like that, because my family moved around a bit. But uh, watching it on a small screen TV in your living room with typical, uh, crappy black and white television reception and then being at the garden with your elbows on the ring you're, you're literally at some points inches from the wrestlers when they're sit when they're when they're at the edge of the ring on the ropes it was a completely different experience and that just it was you just got really charged when you were there you could feel the energy and it was it was great i really had a good time I'll never forget my for the first time I went to the Boston Garden, May 1981. I mean, just walking. You know, I'd been to the Garden before, but not for wrestling. And just you know, walking through that door and and seeing the giant building and the ring, which was really far away the first time. I mean, it was. I mean, this is going to sound crazy. It was like a dream come true for me. I finally got to do it. Yeah, no, it was a great place. I mean, it was. It, it was magical. It's like walking into Fenway Park to see the Red Sox. Once you walk in there and the color and the sound and everything it's it opens up when you walk into the garden it's the same thing i once went to the garden to a celtics game when uh and uh i had a seat right next to somebody that had an obstructed view seat which meant they had to look around a three-foot column to see the floor and that's what the old garden was like you could have some of the worst seats imaginable where you couldn't even see anything unless you got up and and moved three feet sideways to see around a column but somebody still uh, made you pay it for a ticket for that spot. But no, the garden was great. And I'll tell you, there was nothing like being right at the edge of the ring. And it, it couldn't have been any more electrifying. I can, I can see why the wrestlers dug it because it was just the energy level, the crowd, the sense of everything. And that place would fill out. I mean, the, the garden would be full for wrestling, just like it would be full for a Celtics game or a Bruins game. It was it was a high energy event, and that got me uh, that got me back into it. I had a, I had a really good time for the several you know, many times that I went there doing this project. I do remember those beams in 1982. My friend and I, or my friends and I, brought our went to wrestling, and we had tickets to see the Police, the band, and we oh let's see where our seats are, and like right in front of the seat was this giant beam, and we're like well, we're selling these tickets, man. Uh, but I mean, how did you first get into wrestling? Like what are your first memories of watching WWF wrestling? Like when did it start for you? You said you were five or six. What year was that? Uh, it was probably around 1958, 57, um, which, you know, that's how old I am. But we were watching it in in our family TV. Uh, we were living in Framingham, Massachusetts, about uh, 40 miles west of Boston. 
my brother and I, we had this old television, you know, giant wooden cabinet. The brand was Munts, M-U-N-T-Z. I mean, who ever heard of Munts television, but that's what it was. And it was over-the-air reception, and the show was called Big Time Wrestling. And it was on on Saturday mornings, and it might have been on Sunday as well, but it came on, and it was just crudely done. I mean, it was one camera, horrible lighting, black and white. I mean, depth of detail was non-existent. But it was incredible. It was, I mean, we were just, my brother and I were just glued to the TV watching wrestling. It was, it was you know, you had Bobo Brazil and Gorilla Monsoon and Haystack Calhoun. And I mean, all the guys that I, I saw at Garden in 1978, they were there when I was watching TV at six years old. It was, I mean, it, I wasn't seeing anybody that I didn't recognize. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. There were younger guys like Tony Gurria, uh, Bob Backlund. He was probably in his late 20s then other guys, but a lot of the guys that I saw in 78, you know, Walter was close to 50, Bruno Sammartino, he was about probably 50-ish. His nemesis, historically, Ivan Koloff, he was younger. He was uh, he was only in his probably late 30s. But some of the guys, yeah, George Steele, I don't think he was quite 50 yet, but a lot of those guys, they had long careers. They They, they just kept working. Walter Walter was 66 years old when he finally uh, hung it up. I think uh, the match was in the early 90s. And I remember, I, yeah, it was Baron Von Raschke. And Walter fought him. And Walter was 61 or 62 years old, something like that. I mean, nowadays, all these guys, they're basically wrestlers are in their early 30s if they're going to be really viable. And they're out of it by the time they're 40 if they last that long. But back then, you had guys that were that were doing it well into their well into their fifties. These guys, when I saw them on TV at five and six years old, they were obviously younger, but they were still there when I was in the Boston Garden in 1978. Which that was a lot of the allure. I mean, just seeing the same names, it, it kept bringing me back to when I was a little kid, and uh, it seeing the black and white TV come to life. I, I just loved it. I couldn't tell you how much. The, how much fun that was. But. I, I believe it. Now, I'll tell you, the first time I ever encountered a wrestler was, I think, in 1978. I lived in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, and they had weekly shows in North Attleboro. And I saw Steve King at a uh, at a gas station pumping gas. And I, I lived ab- around a bunch of New England Patriots players. So I, I, yeah, I'd been around big guys, and I couldn't believe how big Steve King was. I mean, he was so bulky and you know television did not do him justice i mean did was that similar to your experience when you first like ran into a guy in, in real you know at the garden oh absolutely absolutely i mean walter i think walter was about six six or six seven and uh, he was huge and when i finally met him and and other guys and some of the guys were not that big like stan stasiak he might have been he was probably was six two or maybe six three um, a lot of the guys were not much taller than me. I'm six one, so but some of the big guys, I mean, when I finally saw Haystacks Calhoun in the flesh, uh, I was just flabbergasted. And I always thought, man, that guy can't possibly be six hundred pounds, but he was one of the biggest human beings I've ever seen. And we were standing up in the corner of the ring and oddly he he he, he was he passed away maybe after I saw him in nineteen seventy eight. But yeah, some of these guys were huge, but Walter, you know, I should, I call him, Killer, 
when I uh, first got together with him, we uh, we talked on the phone, and we met up on Boylston Street in Boston. He wanted to go have dinner somewhere. He said, yeah, I'll go. So he, he loved going to this one restaurant, Ken's Restaurant on Boylston Street, where he'd, he'd always order two dinners or whatever because he was just, he liked to eat. He was a big guy, and one would never cut it for him. But the first time I met him on Boylston Street, um, I had taken the subway into town. He had driven in somewhere in Park, and I said, yeah, let's meet outside of a Copley Station, which is just a couple of blocks away from the restaurant. And uh, I came out of the subway station platform onto the street, and I'm looking around, and I see this guy, and he's what, giant. He's six seven, at least. He's wearing this purple leisure suit. He's wearing <laughs> this. He, he's, he's, Walter was bald. He was he'd lost all his hair, but he wore a toupee because he didn't like being bald in public. And this toupee, you could see that from a block away, that was not a, that was not real hair. It just, it just screamed at you, you know, toupee. And honestly, it was just, I was just stunned. And uh, but friendliest guy you'd ever want to meet, just gentlest human being, very spiritual, vegetarian. But he was not the killer in the ring, in real life. He was just a, a truly nice guy, and uh, and loved photography and loved to talk about it and. He had other interests, but and we uh, we got to be pretty good friends. And I ended up uh, doing a darkroom work of, of his work. He ended, he he actually made a uh, I, I can't get into the details of it, but a piece of darkroom equipment um, called a vacuum easel, which you use to hold down very large pieces of paper when you're printing. He had his friends in a machine shop make one for me. Said, "Here, here's a present for you." I was flabbergasted. It was just. You know, it was just one of the nicest things anybody ever did, and I used that that piece of equipment for years. And he was, uh, you know, like I said, he was he was spiritual, not in a Catholic Christian way. You could tell he was deeply spiritual, but he didn't he didn't talk about it. He didn't talk about anything that it had any relation to uh, religion, but it was there for him. But then one day I was saying, "Hey, Walter, show me killer. If I was in the ring with you, you're killer. What happens?" And without missing a beat, he growls, he gets up, he, he gets bigger than he was. All of a sudden, he's like seven feet tall. He picks me <laughs> up like I'm just a two-pound sack of flour and turns me upside down and uh, like it's nothing. And uh, that was just, I mean, that was fun. I actually got, I actually got to get uh, mauled by Killer Kowalski. Well, not mauled, but uh, pre-mauled. But uh, he was a strong guy. I believe it, and I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of that story. That's that's really great. So, when was the first time you went? You actually went to the Boston Garden to see wrestling. It had to be uh, late winter in uh, 1977. I'm going to say probably November or December, and that was the first time I went there with the camera, with the intent of doing the photography. And then it went over into '78, and I kept going for off and on over the course of maybe three or four months. Um, I didn't go every time there was an event because I just couldn't, I couldn't do it that regularly, but I went enough times over the course of time and I tried to space it out so that there would perhaps be a few, uh, a few different wrestlers who showed up because again, a lot of the same guys came to Boston every time there was an event. And, and it, if I spaced it out a little, uh, I only saw Haystacks was only there once, uh, Gorilla Monsoon was only there once. Um, trying to think of uh, some of the other guys that were only once, but then there were 
several guys who were there every time. It started feeling like I was taking the same photographs of the same guys unless uh, some new blood showed up. So so I spaced it out. But it was definitely uh, winter, December-ish of 77. That was the first time I went to the Garden. I didn't go before then as just as a fan. I, I only went there as a photographer, which is too bad because it would have been fun to go back as a photographer fan, having already gone there before as just a fan. But that's how it happened. I can't go back and change time. Although I would love to be able to go back in time and more photography because the young me that was doing the work back then was, I'm not going to say I was easily intimidated, but the me that got more mature as years got by and as I was working in Boston doing a studio advertising work and, and really deal with people and, and managing people's expectations, I would have gotten into that locker room if it was the older me. And, uh, I regret that because that would have been some, those would have been some fun images to have in that whole collection. You know, I, I love your website. I, I love the work that you did. Do you remember the main event of the, of the show, that, the first show that you attended? No, I can't say I do. Um, I can't say I do remember. Okay, Although, that's fine. I would, have, I, would have, I would have to say, I know, well, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. It definitely was a Bruno event because Bruno was at the first the first time I went there with the camera. So it had to be Bruno. And I'm not sure if that was when he was, he, he might have been, it might have been Bruno, Bruno and Ivan. I can't say 100%, but I mean, anytime Bruno was at the garden, he was the headliner. I mean, oh, yeah. nothing. And sometimes it would be him against Ken Patera. Um, sometimes he'd be a, in a tag team with, uh, he was in a tag team with Tony Garia. They were fighting, uh, Professor Fuji and and uh, oh god I I skipped out Toru Tanaka and Mr Fuji and Mr Fuji they were there a lot and I just loved those guys they were they were just fun to watch they were they were really entertaining they had two really good runs in the WWF yeah no they were and uh, they were long timers they they were they were in it for 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 many years. And they were, they were, I mean, when you looked at the, their body types compared to the guys now, it's kind of amazing that the wrestlers back in those days, actually, a lot of them, some of them were, Tony Gurria, he was pretty ripped, uh, Ken Patera, he was, he was a bodybuilder, he was, he was a, a physical specimen, but you had guys that in some respects, like Stan Stasiak, to me, kind of looked like my father, my father took yeah. his shirt off. He was not somebody that had, he was a big guy with a, you could tell he had a big wingspan and he was a strong guy, but uh, he did not look like he ever spent a day in his life lifting weights or, or doing anything that everybody today does. So, and that was part of the, I think that was part of the allure for me for wrestling because a lot of the wrestlers did look like just big, burly guys, but not, they didn't look like they do now by any means. No, they for the last more than thirty years. I mean, it's it's the it's been more about physique than the ability to put on a good match, especially in the WWF. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure that's true. But and a lot of it is you have to sell yourself uh, physically, and 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 you, know, you just have to look the you have to look like a big badass strong guy, and a lot of those guys did not. I mean, Gorilla Monsoon, he certainly didn't. Uh, 
I mean, there were a lot of wrestlers back then who just didn't, who, who would not be in the business today. They just would not be. I mean, with, a, with no other explanation, just because they, they couldn't look the part of uh, the ripped monsters. That I mean, the guys today are certainly just totally giant muscle guys. So, but, yeah, uh, and yeah. I liked it. I liked it better back, you know, in the seventies and eighties, before you know wrestling totally went in that direction, where you know it was it was so physique based. I mean, it always was in the seventies. You always had guys like superstar Billy Graham, Ken Patera, Ivan Putski. You know, these guys obviously hit the gym, and that's kind of what made them special. Like, um, I've been told, oh yeah, superstar Billy Graham. Uh, arrived 20 years too early, and my response is always like, no, he'd be just another guy in 1997 as opposed to 1977. No, I think you're right. He was he was a pretty good physical specimen. He was a big, strong guy, and he showed up at the Garden uh, maybe two or three times. And, yeah, he was one of the stronger guys that you would see. But you're right. Today he would not be as striking as he was back then because – he just had the look. He had the hair. He had the body. He had the muscles, and and he had the attitude. And a lot of the guys, Tony Garea, he was real. He, there was no attitude coming out of that guy. Bob Blackman, no attitude coming out of that guy. And a lot of the guys were just not displaying the kind of aggressive behavior that is all over the place now and has been for a long, long time. But but they wrestled. They got in the ring and they they went after the guys, and they were. A lot of the faces were the guys that didn't get into being the big bad guy that the heels did. So, and the, the fans wanted to wanted to really cheer the faces and and obviously boo the heels. But you could tell they loved them both. They loved them both because it was wrestling. It was it was part of the game. It was the match. Absolutely, it was. It was. I mean, it was good versus evil back in those days. Absolutely. I mean, part of it was watch. It was almost like watching uh, westerns or or war movies, just different versions of good guys versus bad guys, and and uh, sometimes the bad guys won, and sometimes they didn't. But uh, it was fun. It was it was a great. It definitely was, and I mean, wow! You had the. I remember when we first moved up here, and any time I'd watch the news. I mean, more often than not, you hear about, you know, someone getting stabbed in the combat zone and you had the guts to go there and take pictures. Is, are any of those pictures available on your website? No, none of that work is. Um, I, I kept the website focused on wrestling just because that's what it was about. I didn't want to have a focused drift. But, uh, yeah, the, the the combat zone was a pretty uh, dark place. I mean, at night, it was. I, I didn't really spend too much time there at night because that's when it did get a little. Uh, it would be pretty dicey at late at night when when the street walkers were out and and guys were out that were not. They were not there to to be good guys to anybody. So it mm-hmm. had a, it had its moments, but at the same time, there were parts of it that uh, certain days. Uh, you know the the magic hour somewhere between like five o'clock and nine ten o'clock before it got really active. That's when it started getting interesting because you had enough light to still do some work. At the same time, the the kind of dangerous stuff didn't start coming out until I'd say more like after midnight, one o'clock, two in the morning. That's that's when you didn't want to be there unless unless you uh, 
had something else in mind, and uh, that wasn't me. <laughs> it wouldn't have been me either. The For those who don't know, the original idea behind the combat zone in Boston, which no, isn't, hasn't been there in a long time, is, okay, let's just put all this pl- stuff in one place, and that'll be it, and it just did not work out, to say the least. Yes and no. I mean, it, it, it didn't work out, but it was there for a long time. It didn't really go away until... I mean, it was still, I think, into the probably late 80s. It was still there until yeah. it finally just got whittled away piece by piece by piece. But uh, I think there's still one strip club in the combat zone. I think it might still be there. I haven't been I haven't been around that area for a couple, three years now, but there was one place still there, and that was it. I mean, all the prostitution got cleared out a long time ago. Um, oh, yeah. The, uh, don't, a lot of the adult bookstores gone, so it got cleaned up. And I mean, Boston is not what it used to be. South Boston used to be kind of a, a place you could go and get your head beat in if you didn't know better. And that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, now it's all gentrified and expensive condos and houses and townhomes. So it's amazing how much uh, Boston has changed. And the whole Boston Garden, same thing. I mean, I remember when they were tearing that building down. You could drive back and forth on the expressway for seemed like a period of a week or two weeks, and you'd still see pieces of it standing. But you, there was a giant hole in the side of it that faced the expressway. And you'd look in, you'd see the entire, the whole parquet, the floor, everything, the stands, it was all in there. But half the building was gone, and it just looked like a monster had come and just chomped pieces of it away. And, and it was just slowly, slowly coming down. It was pretty sad. Nobody wanted to see the garden go. It was it was such an iconic place in Boston, and uh, the TD Garden, in, in comparison, it's pretty sterile. I mean, it's it's a big venue. It's it doesn't have it doesn't have the character. It certainly doesn't have the history. I mean, yeah, all the banners are up in the ceilings, and you know, wrestling is still there, and Bruins and Celtics are still there. But no, it's not like the old garden with the subway platform right out in front of it, and the, the building itself that I think it was built around 1910, something in that range. They just don't build anything that looks like that anymore. It's all, it's all pretty much, uh, I don't want to use the word sterile, but. No, that's the word. Yeah. yeah my, I mean, so much sterile. Yeah. I mean, I would tell people that, you know, the Boston garden was a dump. <laughs> the seats were way too small. The, the, the site lines were often terrible, but it was our dump. And, that, you know, we just loved it. And I do think by the time they, they took it down, I, I mean, oh, I want to throw this in, too. It was cold in the winter, and it could be brutally hot in the summer. And in my opinion, by the time it was torn down, it, it was time for something new. Like, I, I get that the Fleet Center or whatever they're calling it now is, you know, it, it's another copycat arena. But in my own opinion, it was it was time for the Boston Garden to go. I mean, when the Bruins are playing in the playoffs and they can't play because they, they can't keep the ice melted. It's like, okay, we got to do something. Well, there would be, uh, sometimes the Bruins games, there would be fog, which would form because the HVAC system was so bad. It couldn't ventilate the place. And then, like you say, in the summer, it might be 95 degrees in there. I mean, the players would literally just, even the ones not, not playing, just think would just be dripping sweat. And, uh, it was, it was a tough place, but, it was a great venue for wrestling. It, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, which was uh, done in the early 60s. It's a movie about 
boxer who eventually he has to get out of boxing. Quinn is the starring guy, and he's he's been pulverized so many times that he can't fight anymore. And Jackie Gleason is his manager, and they eventually convince him to become a wrestler. And the venue that he goes into, both for boxing and wrestling, and the crowds, it looks exactly like the Boston Garden looked. The thing could have been filmed in the Boston Garden, but I don't know where it was shot. It was probably shot somewhere in New York. But uh, great movie. If you ever get a chance to see it, I don't know if you've ever seen it. but really I have seen Requiem it. For, Requiem for a Heavyweight. Young Cassius Clay in the beginning of it. Uh, Haystacks Calhoun. You don't see his face, but he's standing in the ring at the end of the movie. As far as a wrestling movie, it's stupid. I mean, the, the scenes in the locker room are completely unbelievable and unreal. But uh, there's something about the pathos and the, and just the gritty black and white nature of it. Uh, it might have been something. I, I think I remember seeing that movie before before I went to the garden as a photographer. And uh, just thinking, yeah, that, that could be something that, would, that I should go look at. I should go look and see what that looks like. And in some respects... Some of the scenes of that ring in the movie looked like that ring in Boston Garden. So it was kind of fun. It was it was good to see that. It was. Hey, Greg, thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling. Can you tell us, well, just plug your website once again, if you don't mind. Uh, the URL is uh, one word, bostongardenvintagewrestling.com. And uh, there it is. It's about, I think there's maybe 80, 90, 100 images on there. The article in the Washington Post that came out in the end of December has about maybe 12 or 15 images, but there's a lot on the site. And uh, I think it really does get the flavor of what wrestling looked like in the late 70s in a black and white sense. And if you like the old classic look, it's there. And the thing is, nobody, very few people ever took the time to, to shoot in an editorial kind of semi-journalistic sense going back and, and shooting without using a flash on the camera. So it's got a great look. It's really interesting. You see a lot of the garden. You see a lot of the background. And you see uh, you see a lot of the people. So I, I tell anybody, if, if you're at all interested in seeing that, that thing back then, it's sitting right there. So BostonGardenVintageWrestling.com. And for me, it was an absolute time machine. Greg, thank you for taking the time for being on. Uh, you were an excellent guest. Thank you again. Great, hey, thanks. It was great doing this. And uh, and uh, all the best to you guys and everybody out there who loves wrestling. And with that, I want to bring into the guest chair our fabulous producer, Lou Kippelman. Lou, thank you for coming on and answering some questions with me. Not a problem, man. Okay. John, now, this is why you want to be part of our Facebook page, because we do occasionally, I try to do it as often as I can, put up questions about, you know, our subject matter for the week. And John Ware asked, were the Nesson broadcasts live or tape delayed? Wouldn't a live broadcast eat into ticket sales? They actually thought that the delayed broadcast when it was delayed every single time uh cut into ticket sales and they stopped it after i believe three or four years i think they stopped at the beginning of 89 uh what did you, did you ever see any of the nesson broadcast lou well the only stuff i've seen from the boston garden was uh the the occasional match they'd have on primetime wrestling ah okay yeah and i like i said earlier i love 
those matches because again, it just, you know, takes me back to the place I grew up watching wrestling. Um, Kevin Dignam asked how many title changes were there at the old Boston Garden? I know you talked about Tito's Intercontinental win. I know Savage won the Intercontinental title there. Just curious on any other titles. Um, I don't believe they switched any other titles there. Tito was the first. And someone brought up, you know, there was a big pop for Savage winning the title, even though he was a, a bad guy. And I can tell you that pop was for, like, it wasn't necessarily, oh, hooray, Randy Savage won the title. It was like, wow, we got to see a title switch. And that was big back in those days. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it, uh, well, my knowledge of WWWF and Capital Wrestling is a little thin. But, yeah, I, I can imagine them uh, trying to spread the wealth out, you know. Yeah. Switch the uh, U.S. tag team titles uh, in one spot or stuff like that. I mean, there, were, there weren't a lot of secondary titles in the Northeast other than, you know, the ones they just kind of affixed to uh, whoever came in, like Bobo Brazil or uh, Freddie Blassie. Yeah, back in my day, they, those were the only like secondary champions. And Bobo Brazil, they they you know never felt like the United States title was ever going to change hands. And then when Bobo left, the United States championship went with him. And I think it's good having one secondary championship. Don't go like crazy like 1987 NWA, but have those two titles. And I, I think I think that's a good thing. Yeah, agreed. If everybody has a title, then nobody is a champion. Exactly. Good way of putting it. Dan Potts asked, why did the WWF wait until 1993 to have a pay-per-view there? My knee-jerk reaction was, well, it was a national company, and they only had four pay-per-views per year at the time, so it was kind of a numbers game, but then I thought more about it. They didn't even have TV tapings at the Boston Garden. I mean, they recorded the shows, but, you know, when they were on Ness in 1985 through, I think, 1989. But they didn't have, like, wrestling superstars or wrestling challenge at the Boston Garden. And I think because it just looked so unique. You had all of that signage for techniques and whatever else, and it was just easier to use another building for pay-per-view. I think by the time 93 rolled around, you know, Boston was still doing good business relative to other arenas, and the Survivor Series sold out, and that's back when, you know, 93, WWF wasn't doing well, so that made a difference. Yeah, and myself not knowing uh, much about the auditoriums and arenas in in the Boston area, Fenway and the Old Garden uh, notwithstanding, were there any kind of acceptable secondary venues that... uh, the WWF could have, uh, say, had a TV taping at? They actually did do a uh, a TV taping and a Saturday night's main event in Worcester, which is about uh, 45 minutes west of Boston. And they also did it in Providence, which is about uh, another 45 minutes south of Boston. Right. And I do recall, was Providence uh, the place that the first couple of King of the Ring uh, tournaments happened at? No, the first couple of King of the Ring tournaments were in Foxborough, Massachusetts at oh, the stadium okay. the Patriots played. I went to the first one and it was like being in the middle of a Colombian prison riot. It, everyone was, <laughs> there were like 20,000 people there. 
everyone was drunk and drunk and rowdy. And I'm like 20 years old, fearing for my life at this thing because it was so out of control. And we actually wound up leaving early. It was and the the wrestling was terrible. The, I mean, if you think the WWF wrestling, the matches themselves were bad in 1985, multiply that badness by like 10, and you've got the first king of the ring. So yeah, the first two were in Foxborough, and then I think they had three more at the Providence Civic Center. Could be wrong. Gotcha. Well, boy, uh, given that uh, type of fan base that was in attendance, that makes sense that you have guys like Don Morocco and uh, Harley Race winning those first couple of tournaments. <laughs> I mean, you know, like Greg was saying, I mean, the old Boston Garden could be a, a very uncomfortable place to be. I mean, like the rule was you didn't wear anything that like identified you uh, like, you know, uh, I don't know, a jacket with your a name on it or a jersey with someone else's name on it, like a Patriots player. You just like wore something black or gray with nothing on it. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't believe it's been 40 years. I mean, we went to see Bob Backlund versus Jimmy Snuka uh, July 1982 in the middle of a heat wave and the building, you've got the sun beating on this building for, you know, all day. And we go in there and we, before we go in there, the bank says, uh, you know how the banks used to have signs that give you the time and the temperature. Yep. It said 112 degrees. Now I don't think it was really 112 degrees, but it was hot. And Backlund and Snooker and everyone else on the show did nothing because it was so hot. And, and ridiculous in that building. And I remember wrestlers taking headlocks and watching fights in the stands. It was nuts. <laughs> yeah, that seems about all you could do in triple-digit indoor weather. Yeah. Oh, I've got. they've got a question for me. Hey, Sue Salas Rodriguez asked the wildest moment you ever witnessed at the Boston Garden. I will share this. Um, mm. They had Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito in 1982 defending the titles against the Strongbow brothers, who had just, Jay, Chief J. Strongbow had just come back. He now has his fictional brother Jules with him, who I recognize as Frank Hill, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, this was a hot feud coming in. Believe it or not, the Strongbows were over like crazy, at least at first. Fuji and Saito were over like crazy as heels. And they they start the match, and Fuji and Saito sneak attack the Strongbows and throw salt in their eyes. And I think it was Saito who pinned Jules in like 30 seconds, and the place was was ready to riot. It was insane. And someone throws a Pepsi can in the ring, and Mr. Saito grabs the Pepsi can and starts hitting Jules with it. And oh. that's going to make things better, Mr. Saito. And all of a sudden, it turned into a two out of three fall match, which they did not indicate coming in. And that kind of calmed everyone down. But like, we thought that was going to be, you know, that that's it, a 30 second match. And uh, I don't know. I don't think they did that on the fly um, because they did Uh it in other cities. But at the time, it felt like they were doing it on the fly. Oof! yeah, that sounds like uh, Detroit level heat there. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was it was uh let me see did the celtics or bruins ever appear at any of the boston garden wwf shows i wish i had asked greg that uh not to my knowledge it was i i think back then 
especially back then, like wrestling was something that the, the real athletes, quote unquote, avoided. I remember you know being surprised when the WWF did a Saturday night main event at Seattle and you had Brian Bosworth and a bunch mm-hmm. of the Seattle Seahawks guys in the front row because you know, normally you didn't see that. Yeah. Oh, that, that would have been funny to see like uh, Robert Parrish at a battle royal or something. <laughs> yeah, Robert, wow, Robert Parrish, man, I miss that guy. <laughs> but all right, we asked uh, answer as many questions as we could. I want to thank everyone for listening. We're going to be back next week. Uh, hopefully, I will have my sound issues completely worked out by next week. I want to thank everyone for putting up with that. I can thank him live. Lou Kippelman, thank you for being my producer. Uh, you are ever so welcome. And this has been a I – oh, I also want to thank Brian Lass and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And this concludes our podcast day.